0: You guys can have a seat. Uh, good morning, and, and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Daniel Ernest, and uh, I'm the executive pastor uh, here, and I'm filling in for, for Wes today. Uh, a lot of you probably heard, but uh, but Wes' mom passed away uh, last week, uh, a week ago today, actually. And uh, I wanted to say on his behalf, and, and on behalf really of his whole family, uh, thanks to all of you who who reached out or said something. Came to the visitation, the funeral. I, I know for a fact, just kind of walking with West this week, that uh, the cumulative effect of of everyone's prayers and, and notes uh, have meant a, a lot to to him and his family. Uh, as the church, uh, you guys have collectively ministered to him, and, and like I said, it, it's been uh, really fun to see, and it's it's definitely been a source of comfort in a tough time. So so truly. Uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, it means a lot. And uh, if you're just now finding out or, or you hadn't reached out yet, uh, I'd say it's definitely not too late. And 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 this is sort of a general reminder: uh, if you're ever wondering uh, when someone is hurting or something happens, should I say something? Should I reach out? The answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. As Christians, as the church, we should always be moving toward hurting people. It's a great way for us, not just to be the church, but to, to live out the gospel in a tangible way. and Even the smallest gestures, the things that you think are insignificant, or, or maybe you think like, oh, that person's probably got a million people reaching out to them. They don't need another text. They don't need another email. They don't need another phone call. I promise you they do. It's, it's, it's so significant to do things like that. They can have an outsized impact. So That's probably honestly the most important thing I'm going to say today. Uh, But but I hope you'll take note of that. And again, I I wanted to thank you guys for being so sweet to West and to his family. Uh, If you've been around the last couple of weeks, uh, you know that West has been preaching on discipleship, Uh, and and we do this every year uh, for several weeks, kind of the tail end of the summer, the beginning of the fall. uh, We take time to cast vision, uh, really to recast vision for why this church exists. A couple of weeks ago, Wes preached, uh, and he said that the gospel does more than save us. Uh, It gives us a a purpose. The gospel compels us to participate uh, in ministry in God's kingdom. And then last week, he preached on Ephesians 4, and that passage, he said this, and it's, it's true. It's essentially the guiding verses for how we think about church, how we think about ministry here at GBC. Uh, the idea is that our, our role as staff, as elders, uh, the pastors, our roles exist. God has given us to you principally so that we can equip you to do the work of ministry, so that you can serve, so that you can be in the dust and labor, as West said last week. And today, staying on the topic of discipleship, uh, my aim is pretty simple. I, I, I want to be practical. I want to speak practically. Okay, hopefully all, all of you hopefully agree that discipleship, making disciples, it's good. It's, it's what we're called to do. It's commanded of us in Scripture. But you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, like, okay, I know this is good. I know I should be doing this, but, but like how? What, is it, what does it look like to disciple someone? What does discipleship look like in real life? And, and there's a lot of really good answers to that question. There's a lot of really bad answers, too. Uh, but what I'm going to do today is I, I'm going to give you what I think is my favorite answer. Uh, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 4. So if you would, please, and you've got your Bible, I hope you do, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17. And, and I know we just got done preaching through First and Second Corinthians So you probably don't need the background, but just in case you do, uh, I want to provide you with some very basic context, okay? First Corinthians, it's written by Paul, and he's writing to a church in Corinth. Corinth is like the Las Vegas of the day, and and, and Paul is writing to deal with several issues. Uh, The headline here is, the Corinthian church is a dumpster fire. And in this letter, Paul is shooting them straight, He's writing to correct them, and he kind of just systematically works through a laundry list of issues that are uh, going wrong in the church, and and he holds nothing back. He speaks very frankly. Uh, In the middle of delivering some tough love, Paul takes time in the verses that we're going to read today, the verses we're going to look at, and he's going to explain the reason why he's saying what he's saying. And as he does this, he gives, in my opinion, the best answer to the question I just asked, which is, what does discipleship look like in real life? Okay, so so let's see what Paul's answer is. I want to start uh, by reading verses 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, again, Paul's writing, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, But to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, verse 14, Paul's saying, The reason I'm speaking to you so sternly is because I love you. Uh, I'm speaking to you as a father to a child. He says, even though you guys are sort of embarrassing me, you're still my children. You belong to me. I love you. Then in verse 15, Paul doubles down on this familial language. He says, I became your father. And in Greek, that I is emphasized. So it could be like italicized or bolded in your Bible. Paul's saying essentially, I and I alone have become your father. And, and, and to make what he's saying even more clear, you might have noticed this in verse 15, he refers to countless guides that are in the Corinthians' life. Countless guides. And and that word for, for guide there, it means, a, a, it's a tutor. And at the time Paul was writing, that word was used essentially for a, a servant who was hired to be the guardian of a child. A, essentially, Rich Roman people would outsource actual parenting to a hired hand. And so Paul uses this word intentionally. He's drawing out a comparison. He's exaggerating. He says, you've got countless tutors. Your translation might even say, you've got 10,000 guides, people that have been teaching you, giving you information. But Paul says, you've got one father, one father person, me, willing to, as Wes said last week, get in the dust and labor alongside of you to love you like a father loves his son or daughter. And just to make sure you understand the distinction here, I want to put it like this. Uh, My my wife, Kelsey, she's a a math teacher at Memorial. Go Stangs. And in fact, I would say she's a really good math teacher. Uh, and, And you might think I'm biased, and I am but I can prove that she is a great math teacher, not only has Kelsey won awards, but she's received bonuses for her performance. Like, when the school gives you an award, like a dinky piece of paper, that's a nice gesture, but when you receive a check in the mail from HISD, that is saying something, okay? So, objectively, and she's probably so embarrassed by this, <laughs> she's a really good teacher, okay? And, and And part of the reason that she's really good is because she's really like, good at math, and and it's still shocking to me that she is, but she's, like, really good at math. She made, like, all 100s in, like, the calculus classes that everyone takes in in college, And, and anyways, it's, it's, she's, she's wicked smart, but, but I'd say she's good at teaching. Most of her skill in teaching, I'm convinced, is not because she's smart or good at math, it's because she loves her students, She goes out of her way to build relationships with her students. In some ways, if you ask her, I I promise you, she would tell you that's why she teaches. She she doesn't teach because she loves math, although she does. She teaches because she sees it as ministry. Now, you might also be aware, we have three kids and and another on the way, and and Kelsey's, let's call it affection for her students, even though it makes her an awesome teacher, it pales in comparison to the way that she loves our kids, right? Like, and, and you'd expect that. That makes sense. We'd, we'd have an issue if she loved her students more than her own kids. That's what Paul is saying here. He, he's, he's saying, I love you like a father. No matter how many teachers you have, no matter how many people are in your ear teaching you even great things, no one, no one, Paul says, loves you like I do. And this starts to give us an answer on what discipleship looks like. So many people get confused. That they think discipleship is this teacher-student relationship. But it's more than that. It's more than that. This is a family relationship. It's a family relationship and and, and there are are, are so many aspects of of family that I could draw out to apply this principle to to, to show you again practically what discipleship looks like. But the one word that I think is most helpful, the the, the thing that I I think gets after this concept of of family the best, no matter if you're married or single, if you have kids or you don't have any kids, the word that I think is the most helpful, it's this, it's access, access. Right, like In our home, uh, our kids, they, they have access to everything. They, they go pretty much wherever they want, whenever they want. And, and sometimes that's less than ideal. Like when they wake us up, jump in our bed at like 6.30 a.m., that's not great. And as they get older, some of that will change, obviously. But right now, they have access. And not just physical access, but emotional and, and personal access. If my kids want to know about something... They ask. If my kids want me to do something for them, they just come right up and ask. They know that they have access to me. So how do you apply this in your life? How does this word, access, how does this concept apply towards discipleship? I think the simplest way to put it is this. We, Christians, you and me, should be people who are making ourselves available to people. And and, and even saying it that way is maybe a little too passive. What we should be doing, you and me, is we should be inviting people into our everyday lives. Let them see what your normal life looks like. We need to give them access. You say, well, how do I do that? Here's some ideas. Invite people over for dinner. You don't have to cook them a gourmet meal, but invite them over for dinner. Let them see what mealtime looks like. Let them see, if you're a husband, how you serve your wife. If you're a wife, how you serve your husband. How you discipline your kids if you've got them. Another thing you could do is include people, even people that you don't necessarily think have a lot to offer you in your decision-making process. Ask them for advice. Tell them how you think about whatever it is that you're thinking about. Show them what being a mom is really like, not like the counterfeit that's on Instagram. Invite them, like I said, to dinner, to mealtime, to bath time. Show them what it looks like to pick up that toy for the like one thousandth time. Normal life. Ask that younger guy in your group to coach the soccer team or the flag football team with you. Invite that mom to sit in the stands with you at the baseball game. Include people in normal tasks, doing the laundry going to the store, working out, cooking dinner, watching a game. It doesn't have to be something spectacular. And by the way, those things I just listed off, those are not random things. These are all things people have done for Kelsey and I over the years here at Grace Bible Church. Yes, we have done laundry with people. Yes, we have done yard work with people. That's normal life. And that is what we should be doing as Christians. We should be giving people access to our lives. And I get it. We're all really busy. Like, making time for people can sometimes seem impossible. And, and all of us, if we're honest. are sort of just naturally selfish. Like, like, we want space to ourselves. Our homes, that's private. We don't, we don't want to invite people to get too close. We need me time, right? Like, like that's sort of how we are. But, but here's the deal. If you wait until your calendar is empty, if you wait until you feel rested and ready, if you wait until your kids are out of the house, if you wait until you change jobs or to things slow down, I promise you, if you were waiting for one of those things to happen, you were just never, ever going to do this. You won't. You won't. And if you think it's just going to happen, it's not going to. I I promise you, the, the, the people around this church that do this, well, they didn't fall into it passively. Like no one, no one ever has passively fallen into discipleship, into a type of relationship that you would define as family. You have got to be assertive. You have got to be proactive. Now, before I move on, I, I do want to clarify. To say that discipleship is not just a teacher-student relationship does not mean, okay, it does not mean that it's less than that. Does that make sense? Paul is clearly teaching the Corinthians in this letter. That's why he said it. That's why he wrote half the New Testament. It was to instruct, to teach. Okay, so, so, so discipleship is not just hanging out. You can't just get breakfast with someone or, or go on a walk or or. Or just invite someone over and and feel like you did something spiritual. No, discipleship is absolutely, it involves the conveyance of doctrine. Really, that's just a fancy way of saying you do need to know things about God and about his word in order to make disciples. And depending on where you're coming from, that might seem like a lot. You might be thinking, There's so many things I don't know, so many questions I don't know the answers to. But I want you to think about it like this, because that can seem intimidating, but think about it like this, the things that you're passionate about, you learn about them, right? The things that you really enjoy, you learn about them, and not only that, you you talk to other people about them, right? Well, like with me, you, you guys, a lot of you know me, I love the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, the the flagship university of the flagship state of the flagship country of the world. Okay, it is, it's well documented. For almost 11 years, I have preached to you guys, and I've talked to you about how we're back, that this is the year, and this year, it's actually true. (laughs) It's going to be a big season for the horns, I promise. Just you wait. But seriously... If you know me, I love talking about Texas. I love reading and listening to Longhorn content. I love watching the Longhorn Network. Like the 2006 National Championship reruns, they never get old. We're always just sort of on a loop at our house watching it, indoctrinating the kids. Like I bleed burnt orange. And the same is true for you. Maybe not about Texas, but definitely, definitely about the thing that you're passionate about. If you love golf, you try to learn everything you can about golf. You read whatever, Golf Digest. You watch the Golf Network or whatever it's called. You play golf, and and you talk about it with your friends. You talk to your friends about it. Do you love cooking, you get on the Internet, and you get on your little food blogs, and, and you read about cooking, and you watch the Food Network, and you cook, and you tell your friends about the recipe you cooked last week. That's, that's what you do. If you're passionate about cooking, that's what you do. You like history, you read books, you watch documentaries, and for some reason you feel compelled to tell your friends about it. Like, <laughs> this is what we do as people. And so if, if you feel intimidated by my saying, you've you got to know stuff about God and about his word to be able to disciple, I, I want you to just remember this. If you're passionate about Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you should be passionate about Jesus. If you're passionate about your faith, no matter how long you've been a Christian, even if you just became a Christian yesterday, you should want to study God's Word. You should want to know more about the God you follow, and you should want to talk to people about it. That's all that is. And by the way, this is why our small groups exist. To, to, to equip you with, with biblical knowledge, ministry skills that you absolutely need as you disciple other people. And this is a shameless plug, but I don't care. Small group registration is still open, and, and if, if this is your church, like, like if you belong to this church, if when people ask you, hey, where do you go to church? And you say, oh, I go to Grace Bible Church. Like, if that's you, our expectation, our standard is that you would be in a group, that you would participate. And <laughs> I promise, I'm not saying that to, like, pump our numbers. Like, we don't, honestly, really don't care about that at all. I'm saying that because our greatest hope for everyone at GBC, every single person, is for them to be in disciple-making relationship. And the reason why is because we think this is where you will most enjoy the Christian life. This is where life abundant is actually had. And so we want you in our small groups to equip you for a life of ministry. So, so, so sign up, register, prioritize being in a group over work or, or flag football or free time or traveling. I, I promise you, I promise you, over time, the cumulative effect of consistent participation, it's worth it. Your life will be better and the people around you will be better for it. So, what does discipleship look like? Paul says, it's not less than the teacher-student relationship. It's more. Remember, he said, it's family. I'm your father. And that's a start. That gives us a great picture, a framework. And Paul starts to fill it in in verse 16. This is where this gets really practical. Look at verse 16. It's real short. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Okay, so to call the Corinthians to imitate him, this is the natural place for Paul to go next, right? He's, he's been talking about being the Corinthians' father, and in, in some way, each of us, whether we like it or not, each of us has similarities or things that we picked up from our parents, right? If you know my mom, I'm a little crazy like my mom. If you know my dad, I think a lot like my dad. My kids, they're doomed. They're picking up a lot of Kelsey and I's quirks. Like, this happens to us. You're like your mom. You're like your dad. So so Paul is continuing along these familial lines, and he's charging the Corinthians, his children, he's saying, imitate me. Imitate me. And and just so you know, this, this concept, imitation, Paul uses it frequently. It is all over the New Testament. Like, when you guys think of Paul, you, you, you probably, if you know anything about him, think of him as a, a, a giant of theology, and, and he was that. I said earlier, he, he wrote half the New Testament, like, big theology guy. But maybe as a result, as a byproduct, I think even more than a big theology guy, Paul was a prolific disciple-maker. He was a prolific disciple maker, and his methodology, his his strategy, it was imitation. Let me prove it to you. You don't have to turn any of these places. I'm just going to start rattling them off. This is Paul writing to all sorts of churches all over the world. Philippians 3, Paul urges the Philippians. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate, example. Later, Paul says in Philippians 4, what you have learned and heard and received and seen and mean, what you saw me do, practice those things. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul has heard that some people weren't going to work, that they were being lazy. And what does he do to correct him? He didn't just say, hey, go back to work. What does he say? He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because when we were with you, we were not idle when we were with you. And you might be thinking, well, Paul is Paul, like the Apostle Paul. He's got a fancy title before his name. Of course, that's what he's going to say. But but not only did Paul invite imitation of his life, he also urged this principle on the people that he discipled. In 1 Timothy 4, he urges Timothy, one of his disciples, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Talk more about Timothy in a second, but also Paul teaches the same thing to Titus, another guy he discipled. In Titus too, he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model for good works. Imitation, example, model. What you see, what you hear, do, and say, those things. That is all over Paul's letters. So what do we gather from this? What does it mean for us? Well, first implicitly it means as christians we should strive to live lives that are worthy of imitation we should strive in the way that we talk the way that we think the way that we feel the way that we act in everything that is under all of those umbrellas in all of those things and more we should be a model for other people both christian and non-christian to follow. It's just sort of implied in being a Christian. And second, beyond being called just to sort of be a, a silent example, you know, uh, preach the gospel and if, if necessary, use words or whatever that bogus quote is. We're called, you and me, not just to live it. We're called to tell other people, look at me. Imitate me. Be like me. Now, that might make you feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It feels a little awkward encouraging other people to imitate us, right? Like, like, we feel real free to say, like, what would Jesus do? You know, you wear the bracelet. But, like, it's a whole separate deal to say, what would Daniel do? Like, if I, if I said that, like, people would be like, who is this guy? Like, Isn't that arrogant? prideful? Isn't it presumptuous? Maybe even more fundamentally, are are you and I even capable of being a model for other people? Like, if you think that, I totally hear you. And there are certainly some dangers there. But I think every one of those questions I just ask, I, I think they're all the wrong questions. I think all the wrong questions. You see, the question is not whether we will imitate others. The question is not whether others will imitate us. The question instead should be, and it is, what kind of models will we be? The question is, who will you choose to model your life after? Because the reality is this. We are, human beings are imitative creatures. Okay, Before we become self-aware, we're aware of others and we imitate them. Like, I experience this basically every day with our our one-year-old. Like, my older kids love to get in front of my one-year-old and, like, stick their tongues out and make weird noises, and and our one-year-old will imitate them. She'll she'll do it right back. It's really cute until it's annoying when everyone's, like, making shrill noises at the dinner table, But, but, but it proves the point. In a lot of ways, we come out ready to imitate. It's like breathing to us. We do it without even thinking about it. So like I said, the question is not, will someone imitate you? The question is, will you, will I, be a model, an example worth imitating? And even still, you might be thinking to yourself like, uh, I know what my life is like, like, and it's far from perfect. Like, No one needs to be like me. Or you might think, I'm too young. I know some of you think, I'm too old. I'm not interesting. People should choose someone else to imitate. Or maybe you're thinking, that's a lot of pressure. I might have to change a lot of things. It's way too heavy. So how can, how can Paul do this? Better yet, why can he do it? Later in this letter, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul clarifies, he tells the Corinthians, you've probably heard this before, be imitators of me, what? As I imitate Christ, as I am an imitator of Christ. And in this, Paul reveals the real power of imitation, of calling people to be like us. It comes not because you're awesome or because I'm awesome. It comes because we are, in fact, imitators So so in saying, imitate me, Paul's not arrogantly or selfishly drawing uh, attention to himself. No, just the opposite. What he's doing is he's drawing attention to the one that he is modeling, to, 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 to Jesus. And he's saying, be like me. Act like I act because I act like him. Paul recognizes, and you should recognize too, in and of yourself, in and of himself, our lives really aren't worthy of imitation. It's true for everyone here. But the wonderful reality, the glorious truth of the gospel is that because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we not only have a model that we can follow, a pattern to aspire to, even better, we have empowerment through the Spirit to live a life worthy of imitation, to live a life that would allow us to say to somebody, hey, look at me, be like me. As I'm trying to be like him through the Spirit's empowerment, we really can do this. Listen, we talk so much about discipleship here. It's so wonderful to talk so much about discipleship, but sometimes I think people can complicate it. (laughs) Discipleship is so much simpler than we make it so many times. What is discipleship? It's this it's imitation discipleship is imitation. So I want you to think, I want to ask you, I want you to consider this week, I want you to talk to your friends, your spouse, whoever, I want you to think about these two things. Okay, the first thing I want you to think about, the first thing I want you to ask is, is your life worthy of being imitated? Is your life something you'd be willing to put on display for someone else to see? Connecting with what I said earlier, if if we were to give people access, would they see something that they'd want? And second, it's the same idea from a different direction. Who are you imitating? Who, Who do you want to be like? Who do you have access with? Or who, really, better yet, do you want access with? And on this point, so many of us need to get over our pride, our insecurity, our fear of rejection. If you have someone in your life that you look up to, you approach them and tell them, hey, I admire you. I think you're godly. I love the way that you parent your kids. I love the way that you do your job. I love that way that you're a mom to your kids. I respect you and I want to spend more time with you. Can I spend more time with you? We've got to do that. We've got to be people that do that. If you've encountered someone who you think is glorifying God, who's living faithfully, latch on. Ride the wave. Do whatever you can to be around those people because the reality is you're going to imitate the people that you're around. So choose wisely. Now I said, this is simple, and it is. It really is. But it's an incredibly hard way to live. It's uncomfortable. It requires sacrifice. So given the innate difficulty to live this type of life, what's the motivation to do it? Why would we do this? Other than just wanting to be obedient, which we should be, why should we engage in the hard work of investing in other people in discipleship? I think we get the, last, the, the answer in our last verse, and it's how I'm going to close this out here. Look at verse 17. Paul says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Now, at first glance, as you read, as you listened, that doesn't make sense, right? Like, what we're expecting is, what Paul should be saying, at least according to us, is, I want you to imitate me, and so I'm coming to be around you. I'm going to be coming to you. But he didn't say that, does he? Now he says, I want you to be imitators of me, so I'm sending Timothy to you. Paul's saying, when Timothy gets there, you'll see him and you'll know how I live. You see, because Paul had invested his life into Timothy, Timothy's basically a stand-in now for Paul. Timothy gets to to minister basically like he is Paul. And as a result, Paul says, my ability to minister in all the churches and everywhere that I am, it's multiplied because of Timothy. He says, my impact is multiplied. So so what's our motivation in discipleship? Why should you let people in to see how you live? It's this. It's impact. It's impact. It's, It's multiplication. God is so gracious in letting us play a role in his kingdom. We get to be on the the front lines of what God is doing in the world through other people. And, and, And I don't care who you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you think of yourself, as long as you're striving to become more like God who has already made you to be through the gospel, as long as you're doing that, you have something to contribute here. You have something to contribute in the world. You've got purpose, something everybody wants. And it gets even better. As you do this, as you call other people in your lives to imitate you, you get to experience God. You'll sense his presence, his provision in your life in ways you never would if you were just sort of to passively go through the Christian life, kind of just checking off things off like a religious to-do list, like almost every other American Christian. No, God says... You want to experience me? You you want to know what I'm like? He says, invest in other people. Make disciples. He says, where you go, I will be with you when you're making disciples. So so if you want to experience the Lord, invest in other people. Put your life on display for them to see. I, I promise you, again, it is worth it. What does discipleship look like in real life? Real simple, I have banged this gong and and you guys are probably tired of it. Imitation is discipleship. And as Christians, every one of us, every single one of us, I don't care who you are, we should not hesitate to use this type of language. All of us should be like Paul. We should open ourselves up, give people access, and as we do, we should say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, uh, Lord, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for your word and that we have a picture of not just who you are, but of your great love for us uh, in the Bible, Lord. And I I also thank you uh, that you've chosen not just to work on your own unilaterally, Lord, but that you've invited us to participate in your kingdom work. Lord, I thank you that you've given us gifts and opportunities to invest in other people, and I pray for each one of my friends here and myself. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to be bold uh, in using our gifts. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to be intentional uh, about relationships that we have, and and Lord, I pray that uh, as we do all of those things, I pray that your spirit would not just embolden us and convict us, Lord, but your your spirit would empower us uh, to do the ministry that you've called each and every one of us to. Uh, We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.